We are going to continue in our series of Journey to Jerusalem. Now, we had a lady call us this week and said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> I said, wouldn't we all? <laughs> come and you can come with us with Jesus <laughs> to Jerusalem every Sunday. She says, no, I want to really go. And, uh, and so I thought, well, why not? I thought maybe we can actually look into the details of how we can make that happen, taking a group of people to Jerusalem. So we'll see what the interest is and, uh, and see if we can find a way to make that happen before it's no longer there. So uh, <coughs> lots of Middle East stuff going on. So uh, yeah, you can look, turn into Luke chapter uh, 11 if you want to follow along. And just as a reminder, we started this journey with Jesus because he said in Luke uh, 9.51 that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what that meant was he was focusing on his end goal. He was headed to the cross. But in the meantime, he was going to teach his disciples something that's very important. A lot of different lessons. We looked at the Lord's Prayer a couple of weeks ago. And I have to say, in this, this, the passage I'm looking at today, 33 to 54, it's not the most fun passage. And so not a lot of jokes today. Uh, not a lot lots of, of laughter. But it's a, it's a serious component where he's actually getting in the face of the religious leaders. He's saying enough is enough. He's exposing their hypocrisy. He's pointing out what's important. And every time he does this, we get to see what's on his heart, what, Je- what matters to Jesus. And uh, he has compassion for his people. He doesn't want to see the, the vulnerable people being abused and taken advantage of. And he sees these uh, rich rulers uh, living high on life while everyone else suffers below. And so going to look at these passages. We're going to start with verse 33. And um, before we get to that, there's a a bit of a historical timeline that I want you to see. So uh, through the uh, history of uh, Palestine, the Middle East, around the Mediterranean region, there's uh, dozens of empires and dynasties that come up, rise up for a time, and then um, get knocked out, or, or they overlap. For example, the Egyptian um, pharaohs went on for thousands of years while other kingdoms raised up and went down and so on. So you can see that the Egyptians started off um, one of the most stable uh, nations throughout history. Um, Babylonians, the first dynasty came up. They, they were knocked out for a while, then they came back. Again, the Assyrians uh, stepped in, took over. Uh, the Medians, the Medes and the Persians, uh, it took over for a while. Uh, during that time, the people of Israel were kept, captured and taken off to exile. And then they were sent, allowed to go back, uh, and then we call it the Hellenistic Empire. So who knows the, uh, the amazing um, leader during the Hellenistic uh, Empire? Who was it? Alexander the Great went all throughout Europe and into uh, all, all the way to China pretty well. So when he died, there was a bit of struggle for who's going to be in charge, and that's kind of uh, what's setting the stage for where we're talking today. So in the lesson today, we're looking at the Roman Empire, and after that, I think they say we, there's a, other empires that followed, but the Bible kind of cuts off during the time of all the churches being you know, put in there. So Byzantine Empire and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to be referring back to uh, in a little bit about the Hellenistic Empire because it had a tremendous influence on where we're looking today. So Luke eleven thirty three. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand 
where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. In the book of Matthew uh, 5.16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they overlap. They contain um, much of the same material, eyewitness account of Jesus, but they word things sometimes a little bit differently or uh, remember phrases that others left out. Verse 34, because your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. A friend of mine recently contacted uh, me and my wife and kids. We were actually driving in the car, and she FaceTimed us. So we're like, ooh, there you are. I'm driving, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going to keep driving. And she says, um, just wanted to let you know that um, the person you knew as my husband was a fraud in many ways. You saw him smiling and life of the party and best friends with lots of people, but behind the scenes, he was beating me, choking my son, holding my daughter's face under the water in the bathtub and uh, brutalizing us in the home. And one of the things that she said during the conversation, she says, every time he got anger, his, dark, his eyes went black. And I looked that up, and it says that when you are in an extreme angry position, the oxytocin causes your pupils to dilate. It can make your eyes appear very dark. It can get, actually dissipate the color in your eyes so that it just looks dark. And this struck me as I was reading this passage. When it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Matthew 6.23 adds, But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light in you is darkness. And how great is that darkness? So an unhealthy eye, I'm going to kind of walk through the passage and explain as we go and then give some application uh, throughout. Um, I'm just interrupting myself all the time today, if that's okay. It's going to drive people taking notes nuts today, but that's okay. A little different way to, to grab this passage. An unhealthy eye is an indication of inner darkness, which manifests itself as selfishness or envy, Rebellion, pride. A healthy eye is evidence of inner light demonstrated as generosity or sincerity, compassion, and kindness. And verse 35 says, Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. I kind of had to stop there for a minute. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. That, what that did is it tripped me up a little bit because I, I realized it implies we can fool ourselves thinking that we, what we're doing is no big deal or we can rationalize our behavior to be okay when it might be reckless. But I look back in the book of Isaiah, the old prophet, chapter 5, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who turn darkness to light and light to darkness, who replace bitter with sweet and sweet with bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Continuing on in verse 36, if you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. That word uh, radiant, it can mean transparent. If you have light in you, you're transparent, you, you're, you're bright, your character is, is full of light. Someone who has nothing to hide and no evil thing can be uncovered. So many, throughout the scriptures, and particularly in the New Testament, Jesus talks about God's kingdom as a kingdom of light. 
And the world's kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. In 1 John, John writes in 1.7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So in other words, if we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, um, we're embracing light and truth and joy and goodness. And if we embrace the world, if we seek after the world's priorities and what it has to offer, well, then, then we embrace darkness and rebellion and arrogance and selfishness. So in the previous chapter when we had people demanding Jesus prove who he is, show us some sign to indicate that you have any authority, they questioned his authority. They demanded some sign to prove his authority. They had darkness behind their eyes. They didn't have light. They weren't seeing the truth. They refused to acknowledge Jesus right in front of them. So how do you know? Maybe you don't know if your light is darkness or your darkness is light. Or maybe you're confused. Well, there's a good indicator in the Scriptures that helps us to understand what's going on in us. Do we have light? Or are we playing around with the darkness? Galatians chapter 5 is a bit of an indicator. It's a bit of a, I can say, a litmus test, so to speak. Do you have love for other people? A joyful personality? sense of peace in the midst of mayhem or unnerving patience. Some people are just so patient. They're annoying. <laughs> They're just calm in the midst of, you know, turmoil. And, and it's like, wow, how can you be so calm? Are you usually a kind person, never harsh? Do you stop yourself from blowing your lid in anger? Do you have self-control? Good indicators that light is in you. You're reflecting the heart and attitude and character of Christ. On the other hand, if you seek to hook up with people for one-night stands on the weekends or think porn is no big deal or dwell on sexual fantasies, constantly trying to oppress others, wrestle against people who confront you with your questionable humor, or are you known for always arguing or are you always trying to pick a fight or criticizing everyone you disagree with? Those are indicators of darkness. You're not settled on the inside. You're not at peace on the inside. You don't have Christ on the inside guiding you and helping you. You're, you're trying to live life on your own terms. And darkness is always destructive to your family, your marriage, your friendships, your job, your future. Whereas light will lead you to everything God intended you to have from the very beginning. Inner peace and joy and contentment and happiness and satisfaction. A purposeful, meaningful life that will leave legacy of brightness in other people's lives. Verse 37, it says, As Jesus was teaching, a Pharisee invited him home for dinner. So he went and he took his place at the table. I'm not sure what place that was. Maybe it was a, a place of honor. Maybe he was the guest. Uh, Let's just do a little bit of historical background. And why I gave that uh, chart at the beginning is because we have, uh, for 300 years following the death of Alexander the Great, we have this Hellenistic age. And during this Hellenistic age in the Middle East, um, the Greeks were ruling over Palestine. And there's a particular bad Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth. Uh, 
He ruled from 175 B.C. until his death in 164 B.C. And those that didn't like him called him a crazy Antiochus. He was not just anti-Ochus. He was anti-Jewish. He was anti-Judaism. He decided to make everything Greek. So he wanted to wipe out the Jewish religion, wipe out Judaism, mess with the whole sacrificial system, mess with all the traditions, the, the festivals and the feasts that were happening, mess with the whole priesthood. The high priest idea became just a subservient person he would um, put in place. He went so far as to defile the Jewish temple, desecrating it by sacrificing a great swine on the altar. It was anathema to the Jews. The the pigs were a no-go, and to actually sacrifice a swine on the altar was the ultimate in defiance and desecration of the temple. Not only that, he forced the priests and the people there to eat the flesh of this pig. He stopped the whole circumcision um, ritual, and he would kill the mothers who would allow that to happen to their children. He put out the immortal lamp that was constantly burning He burned all the copies of the Torah, which led to a Jewish revolt. Have you heard of the Maccabean Rebellion or Revolt? The Maccabees were raised up. They were a fighting Jewish group. They were mercenaries that came in and they said, enough, enough of the desecration, enough of the ruin of our our way of life. You're trying to assimilate us and wipe us out. So they rose up. You can do all the, the research yourself. And I'm actually doing a, a terrible job of historical stuff right now. I'm kind of just tiptoeing through history rather than going deep into it. So because of this revolt, they started to, to, to rededicate the temple, to, to bring back the Jewish religion. And three different groups began to emerge during this time. One was the group of Essenes which were a very uh, esoteric kind of uh, spiritual group, but they wanted to separate themselves from anything political. And they took off and went into the wilderness areas. John the Baptist, you know, a voice crying in the wilderness. Well, he was a part of this community. Um, Very religious, very devout, very uh, minimalist. Dead Sea Scrolls came from this group. They, They were really big on accurately transcribing the Torah, the, the prophets. And so we have fragments of their writings uh, hidden in the hills and caves that we've discovered. Another group was called the, the Sadducees, and this was another kind of a political group. They hung out mostly in the temple areas. They didn't believe in um, certain things. Um, they, they, were, they were, I think they held just to the Torah, the five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, That was all they needed. They didn't need all these prophets. They didn't need all this traditional stuff. They didn't need any interpretations. The five books was all where it's at. Just hold to that. And then a third group were the Pharisees, and they they liked the Mishnah, which was more of the oral traditions, the explanations of all the laws. So the actual laws in the Old Testament came to about 163. That was started with the, the first Ten Commandments. And, um, and so the, the Pharisees took it even further. They had like 39 different laws added to that just on the, how to treat the Sabbath alone. And so they had like hundreds and hundreds of laws out there that everyone had to follow in order to be acceptable to God. So we had the Essenes who kind of kept to themselves. We had the Pharisees in the temple. We had, uh, sorry, the, the 
Sadducees and the temple and the Pharisees hung out mostly in the synagogues. They had, there were a lot of influential in the teachings. So there, and there, at different times, the different groups were kind of coming to power. During this time, the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes were the lawyers. If you had a trouble understanding the law, which law applies to this? My donkey fell in a hole. Can I go get it? Well, there was the scribes say, well, if you do that, there's a penalty, and here's what you must pay. So the scribes and the lawyers, if you had any issues, they would work it all out, tell you what the penalties would be, interpretations, Pharisees, interpretations. Pharisees made sure you did everything right. It was just mayhem. It was just so burdensome. What, which law I'm going to break today? Well, let's try not to break too many laws today. This is the atmosphere that Jesus was put into in the middle of all of this. And all, they all started well. They all meant well. They all were there for good purposes, but it got out of hand. They started worshiping the, the rules instead of God. So a Pharisee asked Jesus to come home for a meal. And, and typically they had very wealthy homes. They had servants, probably had a 10-course meal, impressed with the artwork on the walls, probably had beautiful flowers and gardens to come in. He wanted to impress this, uh, this Galilean rabbi, maybe intimidate him. Find out who this guy was. See what his intentions are. It was not the first time he'd been invited to somebody's home, a Pharisee's home, in chapter 7. While he was having dinner at a Pharisee's home, a woman of immoral character came, was sobbing so much because of her sin and how far she'd gone away from God that she dropped to her knees in front of Jesus, was weeping so much, her tears washed his feet. She dried them with her hair. She poured perfume on his feet, and the Pharisees are going, what? If you had any idea who this woman was, you wouldn't let her touch your feet. That day she left forgiven. Well, the Pharisees kept criticizing him, judging him, trying to find a way to accuse him. Well, Jesus sits down, and the host, in verse 38, was amazed to see that he sat down to eat with, without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. It wasn't getting the dirt off your hands. It was a very elaborate hand-washing ceremony. And it was meant to, for those that were unclean to become clean before they have their meal. Well, what you can guess is that Jesus didn't need to do the ceremony because he wasn't unclean. He was perfect. He didn't have to worry about dealing with sins and washing hands in that way. All these religious rituals were designed to bring people in proper communion with God. But for Jesus, they were unnecessary. He was already in proper communion with his Father. But because Pharisees loved attention and craved recognition for their piety, they wanted to have this rabbi from Galilee come, this miracle worker, figure out who he, are, who he is. And which brings me to my first point. I do have points in the sermon. It's not pointless like other ones. The first point is religion must bow to relationship. Religion has to bow to relationship, relationship with God and relationship with people. So in verse 39, Jesus sees that this, this uh, Pharisee is judging him for not washing his hands properly, and he sets off on a series of woes. Woe to you, Pharisees. In my translation that I'm using here, it says, what sorrow awaits you? I like that a little bit better. So verse 39 says, the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside are filthy, full of greed and wickedness, fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? 
So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, or woe to you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herbs, your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? What a fun dinner guest, eh, by the way? <laughs> do not... Uh, you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. What sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field, and people walk over them without knowing the corruption that they are stepping on. And uh, one of the scribes is getting a little uncomfortable. He says, teacher, uh, you're insulting us too in what you're saying. And he turns to them... <laughs> Like this expert in religious law, the scribe, he's, he, as I say, he's like a lawyer. Um, not so much political as more legal experts. Brings me to my next point. Uh, people are more important than ritual. More important than programs, more important than accomplishing goals. People are the priority in God's kingdom. Yes, he says, verse 46, what sorrow awaits you experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. So what's always bothered me, and maybe because I kind of grew up with it, is uh, we call it religious legalism. Anyone know what I'm talking about, legalism? Did you, anyone here over 40? <laughs> hmm. So if you, if you don't, didn't grow up in church, if your parents weren't Christians, you maybe not know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you did, and you did, well, the, it's like legalism is where you set the rules for people to follow in order to be acceptable to God. And you define what a good Christian looks like according to your own standards. So me growing up, it was you don't dance, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you know, women shouldn't wear pants in church. They need to wear skirts. Not much makeup, not much jewelry. Uh, you don't go to movies. You don't have playing cards. Like all these don't, 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 don't. Rule after rule after rule in order to be a good Christian. Jesus said in Matthew seven thirty three, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And his gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow. And the road is difficult. And only a few find it. So there is a narrow way to be acceptable to God. There's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. But the, the broad way that leads to destruction, everybody wants to take, is far more enticing. It's far more enjoyable at the beginning until they get trapped and they get hooked. And they find out that it doesn't lead to life in the end. And there's destructive relationships and there's brokenness and there's, there's frustrations. But the road to, to life is narrow. And, 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 and here's what I want to, <laughs> my point in this. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart uh, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. I didn't see anything about movies in that line. <clears throat> Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. Nothing about playing cards in there. Peter says in Acts 2, 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
What else? Like, what we want to do is pile on more and more in order to be, you got to change your life. You got to quit the addiction. You got to get straightened out and then you can be acceptable to God. Well, that's a lie after a lie after a lie. The rules here, according to Jesus, are calling on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Believe and be baptized, you'll be saved. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you'll be saved. Let God take care of the rest after that. Just get saved. Come into a relationship with God. You don't have to be good enough to come to Jesus. You are already. He accepts you like you are. We've talked about this before. And he loves you too much to leave you the way you are too. We're all on a journey to Christ like this, and we start at different places. So it doesn't say that you have to clean up your act or stop using foul language or reconcile with everyone you've offended or drive the right car. You can be saved. Just believe. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they wanted to pile on more and more and more and more burdens and do nothing to help the people. Today's generation, I think, from what I understand, talking with my daughter, is um, they're not particularly bothered with legalism. They didn't grow up with legalism. I did not have those same demands in my home that my parents did. I kind of pushed them out the door, and the pendulum kind of swings the other way every generation. So now it's not legalism that's the problem, it's lethargy. Anything goes now. You can drink and you can smoke, you can go to movies, you can do cards, you can wear makeup. You can, all those things we used to say are bad. Let's see. Hmm. Let's see. We, we just said, no, we're going to throw all that out. And so there's, in fact, like, now anything goes. Nothing is particularly important. Everything, anything or nothing you do is fine. It seems like there's very little conviction at all. There's no firm beliefs in very much concerning the Bible or God. This generation, though, has a strong desire to make a difference, to do good things, to not worry so much about accumulating things like their parents did. We have stuff. I've moved about seven or eight times in my life. We always get rid of stuff, and then we get move again and get rid of more stuff. And how do we keep getting all this more stuff? We move and get more more. You think we shouldn't have anything left by now, but we have just as much as we started with. Like, how do we get this stuff? I go to my daughter's house. It's like a chair. There's a, a couch over here. Maybe something on the wall there. It's like minimalist. Like they don't want stuff. They're tired of the clutter. People don't want this generation. They don't want their truth to be imposed on other people's truth. So the lines between darkness and light seem to get more and more blurry. There is truth. There is unadulterated, pure truth that Jesus teaches. The Bible contains and is full of the truth of God's revelation to us. We can follow it. We can count on it. We can say, no, this is actually right, and everything outside of it is not. This is light. Everything outside of his truth is darkness. The laws and rules that God gave us in his word, they demonstrate what he values. They show us what's on his heart, what's important to him. Don't commit adultery. Well, why not? Because well, well, it ruins your life. It ruins your family. It ruins your job. It ruins for, for generations to come. I'm telling you, it will mess you up, but it's fun. It will destroy lives and relationships. He cares about family. He cares about commitment. He cares about parenting. What does he say in John 17, 3? 
This is eternal life. Not that you wear this, go here, say this, believe that. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you've sent. It's relationship. Not religion, not ritual. It's relationship with God. Verse 47 in chapter 11. He says, what sorrow awaits you again? Lots of sorrows awaiting and woes. For you build monuments to the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. In fact, you stand as a witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what it looks like if you're an English major. It's called an inverted parallelism. Go to the next slide. So it says, you build the tombs of the prophets. Verse 47, your ancestors killed the prophets. You are witnesses and approve the deeds of your ancestors and your ancestors kill the prophets and you build tombs of the prophets. It's like he states it and he states it again. He's just saying you're no better than all of these people that have killed. God sent person after person after person to help you, to give you guidance, to warn you of things to come and you killed them and persecuted them and now you're just building monuments to them, celebrating that your, your own ancestors killed and persecuted and did away with the people God sent. Verse 49 says, this is what God and his wisdom says about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. So there's an age-old tradition of silencing God's messengers, Jesus says. Kings and rulers didn't like to be held accountable. They wanted to do what they wanted without God's uh, 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 rules. They didn't like the prophets warning them of impending doom. They persecuted them. They threatened them. They killed them. And Jesus is kind of saying... And I'm next. I'm, I'm in a long line of faithful prophets and apostles and messengers from God, and you're going to treat me the exactly the same way. And his disciples will be treated. So the third point is everyone gives an account. Gives an account of their actions and their words. In verse 50, continuing on, he says, As a result, this generation will be held responsible. For the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in the religious law, for you remove the keys to knowledge from the people. You don't even enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent everyone else from entering. And as Jesus was leaving, the teachers of the law, Pharisees, the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees became hostile, tried to provoke him with many questions, and they wanted to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. So they showed their true colors. They were just as Jesus said. They wanted to silence the messenger of God. He exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed their lack of concern for anybody else but themselves, and they just wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to silence him. They didn't like what he had to say. And there's this recurring phrase in this passage and my translation says, what sorrow awaits you? There will be a judge. There will be accountability, if not on this earth, uh, when we stand before him. And when we do to others what we want them done to us, the way we treat them, Jesus is going to treat us. So he says, you know, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. But he says more proactively, do to others as you want them to do to you. Because we're setting the standard for how we're going to be treated. The Bible talks about those who refuse to bow down to Jesus as Lord, will be cast away from his presence, 
where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and much sorrow. And I don't know if that's what Jesus is referring to, what sorrow awaits you, but I have a feeling it is. Those who are among God's people, the faithful ones, will stand as judges over those who persecuted them, who discriminated against them, who treated them with disdain and disregard. So what's the point of these verses? What's Jesus saying to us today? This is 2,000 years later. What does he want to try and teach his disciples and teach us as they journey to Jerusalem? Well, first of all, to the religious leaders, it's a tremendous responsibility to be in a position of of leadership among God's people. Never take that lightly. In God's kingdom, influence and respect are earned, not demanded. If you're a home group leader, if you're a Bible study teacher, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're working with the youth or the children or the young adults or adults in any way, you will be held accountable. It is an extremely important position. Make sure you're prepared when you show up. Don't just fly off, uh, see if you can get away with the top of your head. Make sure that you're ready because God may want to speak through you in a tremendous way to those people. Secondly, hypocrisy can be alive and well. Today, as it's always been, people saying what everyone else should be doing while they do something different themselves, feeling that we are above having to follow the rules or expectations. So in God's kingdom, everyone must lead by example, not by word. We don't just tell people what to do or tell people what they should be doing. We have to show them the kind of life uh, God expects us to live. We have to demonstrate. I can tell you the pressure on a pastor is tremendous, especially when my kids are sitting in the pews, and I'm talking about how we should live our life, and they're going, yeah, right. I saw how you yelled at that driver who cut you off. You know, the, am I living at home when I'm preaching from the pulpit? Am I demonstrating for my kids who see me every day when I'm coaching baseball or in basketball, how am I treating everyone? How am I responding to difficult situations? I want them to see that I'm the same guy here as I am at home or in the baseball field. We have to lead by example, not by decree. And third We might think we're getting away with things, but God sees. God knows. God will return to each person what they have done to others. In God's kingdom, those on the narrow path will find joy and rewards awaiting them, and those on the wide path will find woe and sorrow. Let me end with Matthew 5.16. We covered it earlier in this chapter. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 